When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to this Future Noughts Topia special with him, Mark Stevenson and me, Ed Gillespie. Topia is a brand new digital magazine where anything goes as long as it's good. And we are the Future Noughts, a couple of futurists, authors, recovering sustainability guys who love the planet. Some of you may know that we do a podcast with comedian and professional warrior John Richardson. We talk about what's wrong with the world, what needs to be done to sort it out and wrestle with the bigger picture. We're excited to collaborate with Topia to bring you this regular podcast series of cosmic chats, candid conversations with some of the remarkable planetary defenders keeping our planet cool. Topia magazine takes a kaleidoscopic look at culture, positive impact and outrageously good stories covering everything from design to conservation. Why? Because we might be overstretched, overproduced, overwhelmed, but we're not over tomorrow. If anything will save the world, it's falling in love with it. Topia is created by our wonderful friend, Lisa Goldapple, who, by the way, you should never go on a night out with because you may not come back with your sanity intact. But she takes you on a journey around the world's wildest edges as a vibrant guide to an extraordinary world in metamorphosis. It's all a bit trippy. Think Lewis Carroll meets Tina Fey in the canteen at National Geographic. Season one is themed on the Big Bang, so expect stories of stardust and supervolcanoes and polar explorers and astrophotographers and tentacles and, according to Lisa Goldapple, talking beavers and dopamine fireworks no mushrooms are necessary apparently no in the name of all things good we're launching this topia series by turning the tables on our very good friend and future nought compadre john richardson we're interviewing him something he doesn't allow to happen very often particularly about his comedy in a cosmic chat about turning difficult times into laughs his personal big bang epiphanies and what a world of good looks like so let's get future naughty with topia and john richardson god it sounds awful <laughs> uh, we're turning the tables and uh, he's usually the star but this time he's the victim <laughs> victim is big <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna start john um because there is an argument that being a comedian means that you actually have to be a bit more aware or a bit more observant than other people you see things that other people don't or you see things in a way that other people don't is that true are you special do you see a bigger picture no, I don't think so. I think... You do know that you're supposed to have said yes there. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Um, yes, I think so. <laughs> you just edit out the first one, can't you? You don't really need me. You could have sent me a script. <laughs> um, Certainly, when you go and see a comedian, 
they will say something you go i have never thought about it that way and that's part of what makes me laugh so you must be seeing things that other people don't see yes but what you're seeing when you see i mean if you stumble across an open mic night and you see a comedian doing that that person is gifted what you mean when you say you see a comedian and i think you see them on tour hmm. when they have probably at that point spent a thousand hours distilling every thought they've had to the most interesting and i would say that certainly you too i know and most people if you went through a refining process of all your ideas and thoughts and funny things you'd said in the pub and all a comedian does is say that again a hundred times again most people move on and go and do a valid job and we just think oh i'm going to travel to every town in the uk and say that thing so they all think <laughs> i just thought of it <laughs> so it's basically like Baudelaire. You drink an ocean in order to piss a teacup and then you go and piss in that teacup all over the country. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, the teacup is nice. And no, as long as nobody saw you drink the ocean, then you've got away with it. Um, this is I mean, Up until this moment, you know, I really admire you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is why I don't do these interviews. There's so many interview shows for comedians and I get asked to do all of them and I haven't done a single one <laughs> for this reason. We are honoured. We are truly honoured. But if we go back to the origins, John, so when did you first think you might want to be a comedian? And, and what made you think that was a valid choice? Because was it sort of an accidental thing? Was it an epiphany? Was there, was there a big bang revelation? That's very interesting because those to me are two completely different questions. So it wasn't a point of thinking I wanted to be a comedian and questioning whether that was a valid choice or not. I knew very young that I wanted to be a comedian. I knew I wanted to make people laugh. It then took 10 years for me to work out that that was a possible career because where I grew up, there just were no comedians you know i grew up in lancaster which is a big city you know i've got a lot going on university and there's a lot of trades there it never occurred to me for even half a second i didn't know there were open mic nights i didn't know comedians did university campuses i didn't know comedy existed beyond buying a lee evans vhs or a jack t vhs i just thought those people had been handpicked in a way we do with politics rather than have it open to everyone if you go to the right school you get to be a politician and in the same way, I just thought, well, somebody found Lee Evans and made him a comic. Someone found Joe Brand and made her a comic. You know, I didn't know it was a career. So I've got a diary entry from when I think I was about 13 saying I really want to be a comedian, but I think I'll be a teacher because I didn't know, you know, that to me was like saying I want to be an astronaut. It felt like it's just it wasn't real. And it wasn't until I went to university and dropped out of university and then did a couple of jobs that I found out about open mic nights and thought, oh, well, of course I'll try that. And as soon as I tried it, I thought, oh, I should have been doing this the whole time. Let's just pull at that a bit more because you said when you were 13, you said you wanted to be a comedian. Why? I knew that the thing I was best at was making people laugh. I knew that, and that, <laughs> I say the thing I was best at, that was a short list. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that I always wanted to do was I always wanted to get a laugh in any conversation and I'd probably just gone through I mean when I was 13 my sister's five years older than me so she, she'd she gone through difficult teenage years and she bore the brunt with my mother of me learning what the difference between a joke and a controversial statement was <laughs> those were some dark years those were some real ah so I've got a reaction there but not a laugh and that remains to this day the skill I think most comics need is to tell the difference between a laugh and a reaction because anyone um, can get a reaction, but it's a real skill to get a laugh. And, you know, the ooh noise, I think, is 
it's quite easy to get. You could just say something horrible and, mm-hmm. and an audience will make that noise. But a laugh is such a different sound. It's such a pure sound. And, and you know, a rolling laugh and that shrieking laugh and the, the <laughs> snorting laugh, you know, those <laughs> those are the sort of things I'm mining for. Those are the diamonds that you're looking for. John Richardson's Museum of Laughs. <laughs> yeah, snort miner. <laughs> now, uh, it's fair to say that you are quite famous. How do you not go bonkers? Like, you are sort of recognisable in the street famous, and you were on the TV quite a lot. Too much, actually, for my liking, but there you go. Mine too. Um, <laughs> how do you stay sort of grounded when when you are actually put on a pedestal? And in fact, your career kind of depends on you being watched and seen and, and admired and, and liked, you know. How do you not go complete nuts? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for implying that I haven't. Um I, well, I would say certainly my comedy depends on me being, you know, uncomfortable and different anyway. And I think also, you just, nobody's as famous as they think they are. I think it becomes (laughs) a madness. You know, if famous means some people look at you and one in a hundred will come up and say hello, and in my experience, be exclusively nice that's it pick your team you know you can i'm not i'm not denying there's a sort of attraction to thinking you're that famous it becomes a sort of addiction i think because it's nice if you say to people oh you'll have to send a car and they do send a car and it's nice actually if the car doesn't turn up and you get on the train and you find you're surrounded by commuters who aren't even looking at you (laughs) you suddenly come crashing down to earth quite quickly so uh, you know and i have i have a daughter i can't I can't tell my five-year-old daughter that I'm too famous to go to Jungle Jim's Play Center for her friend's birthday. <laughs> she just doesn't care. She doesn't. She sort of knows I'm on telly because every now and again she'll come up to me and say, "Excuse me, are you John Richardson?" Which I find hilarious. Um, what has being a comedian told you or taught you about the human condition that you might not have realised if you'd become something like, well, let's say, a chef or something? something else what is what is the unique insight into the human condition that comedy brings well i mean a chef you you bang on there ed because a chef is what i would have become i think had i not become really? a uh, yeah that's what i was doing when i started comedy hmm. you see i knew um, that when i wrote the notes i knew that John <laughs> yeah i would have i would and i would have been a very angry i mean whatever comedy does teach you chefing teaches that if you lock testosterone adult men in a basement <laughs> with no windows <laughs> they get angrier and knives carry, and sharp, and knives. And sharp turn, knives and heavy pans and turn up the heat yeah get some gas on there get some carbon monoxide floating around in the atmosphere make them stink of onions send down pretty people from the outside world they send the pretty waiting staff down to pick up the plate from the trolls and then head back up sound like you really miss it um i would i mean the most important thing i've got from comedy is the a concrete process by which the worst things that happen to you or happen in the news or happen globally become a punchline i mean that's the alchemy when you can take a difficult thing turn it into a routine that makes other people laugh night in night out on a tour it is a, it's such an exhilarating feeling. Mm. And it's, you know, I don't say that out of any sense of that I'm doing a charitable service. It's, it's vanity and it's how I pay my bills. But as a process to go through, you know, I literally start a tour thinking, 
what are the things that have happened to me in the world in the last two years that I want to talk about. And you refine your opinions and experiences of those things until all they are is a series of sentences that make people laugh. And that process is so, so rewarding for me as an individual um, that, you know, I think everybody should be able to do that. And and I think counselling can do the same thing, talking about an experience and turning it into something, turning it into a learning process. Mm. is is the same thing but it's it's absolutely and you know i've spoken to friends my friend mark you know when he's had difficult times he says now i know i'll always be all right because i can go and do stand-up and i can go and turn difficult things into laughs there might not be laughs on live at the apollo there might be literally you go to the pub at the end of your street and do it and i know loads of people you know from when i started they're never going to become comics they know they never become comics they just do stand up two or three times a year and it's it becomes a part of their arsenal for dealing with the world. Hmm, that's very interesting because when I was a stand up, I got asked yes. to do a show um, about the theories of humour, which was like being handed a poison chalice. It was at the Science Museum. And I think it was E.B. White who said, analysing humour is like dissecting a frog. Nobody much cares and the frog dies. <laughs> yeah. but, but nonetheless, I kind of went for it. And one of the theories of humour is this theory of, of emotional release in that the, the comic, by making jokes about something that you find difficult to confront, releases you of some kind of cognitive sort of knot. And it's that releasing of the knot that makes you makes you laugh out loud. And the other thing that strikes me about it is that... Um, you said that, you know, it's a good for your mental health. But, you know, when I was on the circuit, and obviously I know a few comics from that time and have stayed friends with a few, it seems to me that for a lot of comics, it's not good for their mental health. They they, they do go slightly bonkers and they're self-absorbed. So you've obviously turned it into something useful and helpful. I think that is, that's the difference between the art of creating comedy and the fact of being a comedian i think Mm -hmm. the fact of being a comedian can send you mad it is a it's a brutal almost gladiatorial when you're doing club nights you know very well who's got the biggest laughs there is no interpretation about it and that can be very damaging you know some of the comics i've gigged with who've had the hardest time are doing things they believe in but they're not as accessible as some of the other acts that they're on with, and they're watching people surpass them. All that stuff in in any job, you know, you you two both have, you know, deliberately entered realms that are challenging and tried to instigate big changes in the world, and you suffer the slings and arrows as a result of that. Mm. That process is going to be very difficult for you, even if I think you would both say broadly, the careers you have now are more fulfilling than things you've done before. That doesn't mean you are immune from wanting to advance and feel like what you're doing is having an impact mm. yeah we're like the jerry sadovitz of sustainability consultancy <laughs> <laughs> there's a reference so anyone listening can can go and google jerry sadovitz and have a look at some stuff and then come back to the podcast with a new view of ed and mark <laughs> um but this leads on to our next question which is uh, might be revealing which is do, do you have any comedy heroes and if so who, who are they and why um, there's very little I don't like. You know, I just, I'm a sort of completist. I will watch everything. The comics that made me want to be a comedian were Billy Connolly and Lee Evans, I would say, because of what it felt like watching them with my mm. family. I'd watch them with my mum, my sister, and my nan when she came to live with us. And those comics who could make all four of us laugh the same. I That was such a powerful thing to, you know, Lee Evans' routine about 
people keeping carrier bags in drawers and carrier bags within carrier bags. I mean, I watched my sort of 90-year-old triple bypass recovering uh, grandmother and my mum and my sister nearly die watching that, all three of them. And that was... And that was one of the happiest moments of your life. Oh, absolutely. I, I want a piece of that. I want to be giving people hiccups and emphysema and whatever else I can do. Um so you know that that sort of unifying comedy and that you know the silliest stuff i i thought when i started comedy i thought i was going to be a lot more slapstick because i love lee mack and that the stuff i watched was rick mail and even very young i i watched Wee herman just on a loop just trying to work out why it was funny and what was funny about it i obsessed over Pratt falls and fart noises and you know my mum will tell you it's just an absolute nightmare <laughs> and my first ever comedy set was written longhand because I'd never done a gig before so I wrote my set out longhand and it I've still got it upstairs somewhere it says on it brackets comedy fall onto stage question mark close brackets <laughs> and I just thought well I'll just see the vibe you know I'll judge the room and if it feels right I'll do a comedy fall onto stage and I knew then and I still maintain it now if I'd have done that well, nothing would have been funnier than convincing people you've fallen over onto the stage. I still think it's the funniest thing. When I look back over my great comedy memories, they are people I care about falling over. Strikes me there, what interestingly, John, what you're saying is kind of about universality. It's the bringing together of people that is your joy, you know. It, and if that is over your own misfortune, making yourself the butt of that joke, then you're happy to do that. You don't want to be. Um, oh, what's this? There you gone. go, you've proved the point. You've proved <laughs> the point. You don't want to be that guy. I do not. You can't even remember his name. That's how much I don't want to be Bill him. Hicks. You don't want to be Bill Hicks. I just want to get the most laughs I can. So, you know, I used to I used to live with Russell Howard. Those times driving around in crummy cars back from awful gigs, and we would just talk, you know, both just hunting for the, I, I believed there was the perfect gag, but I don't believe that anymore but I believed there was a joke that everybody in the world would laugh at and that our job was to veer towards that as much as we can. Oh, that's um, got to be, surely that's got to be your big movie debut, isn't it? You and Russell in search of the perfect joke in a car. And yeah. You, I, and then you find it and you're about to say it and the film ends. Absolutely. Full Sopranos, blackout, too yeah. powerful. Um, <laughs> for, for me, I have to believe that you, I, my favourite thing in stand-up is doing a preview night and saying something you've never said before. And I can't write stand-up in my office because it will be the most depressive, horrific stuff because that's where my brain tends when I'm in a room on my own. I have to go to a gig and look at an audience and think, right, I have to make these people laugh. And saying something you've never said before that you know is going to work for the rest of the tour is, is my favourite thing in the world. It never would have happened. If I hadn't driven to Warwick on that Thursday night and got up in front of that audience in those circumstances and come up with that ad lib, <laughs> that ad lib you will then go on to say every night on the tour. So you might have, you know, 10,000 people. If you do that gag on live at the Apollo, 4 million people might laugh at that joke. And it came from that little moment. And that's my favorite bit. Every time I tell it after that, I get more and more bored with it until, frankly, I hate it and my own existence. Mm. So, so what we're saying is Lancaster, not funny. Warwick, very funny. funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an odd one to pick, wasn't it, Warwick? Yeah. Not a funny sounding name. I should have said Kidderminster. That's what Rick Mail would have said, Kidderminster. Kidderminster was funnier. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> John, much more now. You're using your comedy 
to help bring bigger issues to a wide audience. You know, when Mark and I worked on Ultimate Warrior, when we all first met, mm. you know, there was a whole section on flu pandemics in September 2019. Yes. How do you think about putting something important in something funny now because obviously you're doing more of it and perhaps on the forthcoming tour there'll be even more too you know how do you bring those key humanitarian challenges into being funny it i'm not gonna lie it's really hard it is still the biggest challenge in in stand-up i mean ultimate warrior was you know it was a godsend having you two come in and say these are things you need to talk about and then you've got the entire arsenal of a TV production company in terms of, you know, games you can build, VTs you can film, things like that. And you don't have the same need for a gag rate that you do live. I I am heavily influenced by the two of you and the topics that we've talked about on the podcast. And I do feel a responsibility. Yeah, and I now feel a responsibility to all John Richardson fans. Uh, we're really <laughs> sorry. It, we didn't ask him to do it. We've probably ruined him forever. And we apologize wholeheartedly now for ruining your favorite comedian. <laughs> well, I mean, I did two previews this week and the 15 minute routine that is building is about my hemorrhoids. So I don't, you know, don't worry that you've influenced me too heavily. I'm not going to be jettisoning the hemorrhoid routine to do a 10 minute routine about the future of carbon drawdown. So when I say I'm influenced by two, the two of you, I mean, I feel a pressure to do that. But if I can't make it funny... I won't be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> the know. future of piles. As much as I want this tour to feature material about how we need to shape the future, if I make the tour really funny and I become more well-known and then I use that popularity to do things like our podcast, that is a better use of my time. And it's really tempting to just go straight at it and say, right, I'm going to put a routine in the tour about that. But the longer goal has to be, how do I have the most influence? And I have to accept, as frustrating as it is, I'm I, people don't want that from me. They don't want to turn on the telly and see me and think, oh, this is going to be a 10-minute conversation mm -hmm. about this thing. They want to see me and be made to laugh. And through that, I can then every now and again say, I wish you would listen to this, or I want to make a program that has this as an element of it. Mm -hmm. And it's a slower process, but I, you know, being more realistic and being a bit older... I think that's the better route for me. And um, so uh, here's a sort of a, a mean question, but uh, does, oh, the, does the world need comedians? What are the best things a comedian can do for, for the world, for the future? I think uh, a balanced and happy world maybe doesn't need comedians, but an imperfect and troubled world certainly does. And that seems to be the one that we're going to live in. You know, sometimes at the start of a gig, I'll say, thank you for coming. And it's an admission of you know defeat really because you've admitted that you're you're not happy in your lives and you have to pay someone to make you laugh because your <laughs> lives are tragic and hideous you're not happy with the person you're with but you don't dare say it to them so you've come to watch me pick apart my relationship so that you can get some sort of joint release because you didn't speak to your partner about the way they load the dishwasher and i i think we should snip it that bit and, and put it out as a trailer for your next tour <laughs> <laughs> yeah how miserable must you be that I'm the solution? My God. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that is the, the purpose you serve. You know, I, I, I'm still a fan of stand-up more than I'm a stand-up. And when certain comics I hear are going on tour, you know, Kevin Bridges is one. I'm not a comedian when I hear that Kevin Bridges is going on tour. I just think, oh God, I can't wait to see that because I'm going to laugh loads in that 
hour and a half mm. and that's going to make me feel better and I'm going to look forward to that for months. What do you think the role of comedians is? Because we, we talk a lot about, oh, I mean, I think our, our partnership came together because you two believe that we have a, a role to serve in disseminating this information and making it accessible. I think there's a lot, a lot about pricking the bubbles of pomposity. So you came to the biggest prick in the business. <laughs> I mean, I think it's something I say a lot, but you know, people laugh at the truth. So I think you can mm. get to the truth in a way that isn't kind of non-threatening. Like you can use humour to say something that people will thank you for. Whereas mm. if you told it to them straight, they would have mm. punched you in the face and asked you to leave. What's it like being married to another comedian, John? Is it kind of like brilliant <laughs> laugh a minute knockabout and all hilarity from wall to wall in the Richardson household? Or is it like a horrific, dark, twisted nightmare? Well, I mean, taking Lucy out of the equation for a, for a minute, what, what do you two think it would be like being married to me? <laughs> We've been married uh, seven or eight years now and it's, it's getting to that point where you just suddenly realise, oh, we're doing this. We're sort of slowly, efficiently becoming a team who understand each other better and there are jokes that I made in the first couple of years of our relationship that I don't make anymore <laughs> um, <laughs> things I used to think were funny that I've been educated on by my life that I don't need to do or say anymore but still the funniest thing is when one of us falls over or accidentally farts <laughs> to go back to a recurring theme you can have all the satire you like. We can sit and watch the news in the morning and lambast the politicians. But if I get up from a chair and fart, that's the funniest thing that's going to happen all day. <laughs> talking, talking about a family, you've got, you've got a daughter together. Have you explained to her what your job is? We've told her that we make people laugh, that that's our job. I think she's too young to understand that that's weird. Um, <laughs> so this is all very well and nice. Okay, so you're, you're paying a very lovely picture here. But just to get sort of slightly serious for a bit, mm. um, you've talked about being very unhappy in the past, uh, having a bit of OCD. Um, mm -hmm. and um, But you seem pretty okay now. Um, but then you, just recently you said, like, if I sit in a room by myself and try and write comedy, it's going to go to a very dark place. So that's why I kind of write in front of an audience. So yes. clearly this side of you that that, you know, can and has in the past been in an unhappy, pretty unhappy place, you know. Um, what do you do to stay happy? Or how do you, you know, because you seem generally, and maybe maybe it's just a side you showed to me in there, but you seem generally to be pretty well balanced and pretty okay these days. Yeah, I am at the moment. I, I'm certainly more stable now than I've ever been. And I would just count the early stages of our marriage as still, you know, some instability there. I am more stable. Partly having a child is, you know, on a sort of micro level, I mean, I notice it most when leads loose, and I don't mean this to sound as pathetic as it does, but there's nothing like getting home from a game and seeing your child to make you realise how ludicrous it would be to carry that anger and disappointment into the next half an hour. And I used to sulk. I mean, as a kid, I would sulk for days after Leeds lost. You must have sulked a lot as a child. They lose. Yeah, they used to lose a lot. Um, I mean, the thing I did that is, has been the most useful to my sort of mood being a bit more consistent is having counselling. I, You know, it took me until I was 30, but I had counselling. And that's, I guess, because I had a couple of friends who I sort of knew well enough to be a bit more honest about, you know, when I was down, what that felt like. And they said, oh, that's not normal. I always thought everyone felt like it. 
and when I explained it, they said, oh, that's not, I don't ever feel like that. Um, so I, I followed up on it and I had some counseling. It was just the best thing I've ever done mm. in my life. Did you try and make your therapist laugh? No, God, I arrived. You couldn't have a more stereotypical, angry little man. <laughs> it was a nice, she had a little sort of home office in the back of her house, in the bottom of her garden. It was next to a cemetery. So I used to go and have my session and then walk around the cemetery for a couple of hours in the rain afterwards, mulling over what we talked. There was a chair in the room and there was a bed. And obviously we start in the chair, just sort of chatting generally and getting to know each other. And she would say, as you become more comfortable with the session, what's going to happen is I'm going to ask you to lie on the bed and not look at me and just look up. And then, then we'll be able to go to more interesting places. And I could see by the bed, there was a bin with tissues in it. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going on that bed because you're going to make me cry. <laughs> it was such a cliched, angry little man state. I mean, it, I, I, it must be what you learn in the first session of wanting to become a counsellor. <laughs> you know, I think she instantly knew everything that was wrong with me from that comment, but I just kept that up. I was like, I'm not, I'm no, because you'll make me cry and I, I'm not paying you to come here and cry and then go and walk around a cemetery. So <laughs> I treated it like going to the doctors. I was like, you prescribe the thing that I need. Mm. And it wasn't like that. It was a process of realizing that it was just about understanding why you are the way you are through her asking the right questions. But the first sessions were not funny at all because she wouldn't talk until I talked. It drove me mad. Mm. She would she would wait. I don't know what the name for that kind of therapy is, but she would wait for me to talk. And we were having a couple of sessions a week at the beginning because she said I needed it. It sounds quite lazy. I would sometimes be silent for about 10 minutes and yeah. then I'd say, this is fucking insane. <laughs> I'd say, what are you going to do if I don't talk for the hour? Yeah. You're just going to bill me for the hour and I'm going to go home. It's the silent treatment. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, because we'd have had one session where we talk about some quite intense stuff from the past. And then I'd come back <clears> two days later, I was like, you must have something to say about what I said. <laughs> you know, if I took my car to the garage and they just stared at it, I said, well, what do you think's wrong with it? It would drive me insane. But so listening to you talk, actually, what, you know, therapy is, 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 as you said, sort of engaging with difficult stuff. And actually you've said of the podcast that we all do together, that when we talk about climate change or inequality or all the things that are wrong with the world, hmm. you've said that you've actually found that, has cheered you up in a strange way. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, I think acknowledge it. I think we all are in a really odd state at the moment um, where we know exactly what is wrong with the world and what needs to be done. You know, there are obviously intricacies within that and the podcast is illuminating in terms of systemic change that's needed and how things are linked. But in terms of what we need to do to tackle a lot of the issues, we all know and we're just pretending that we either aren't ready to deal with it or that we don't know and you cannot do that and I think a lot of people are drifting around I mean my favorite one was the fashion episode because it had such fascinating take-home facts in it it was really refreshing to hear how easily you can change things in terms of a damaging industry and because I don't ever buy new clothes and I walk around looking like a tramp from minute one I got to feel smug because it doesn't involve me <laughs> 
So that was the best one. Do you know what's you know um, slightly upsetting about that is like we're just about to start planning series four, and you're saying your favourite episode was quite early in on series one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you keep talking about things now that I have to do to change, and that, that I don't like that as much as you know. But no, you the thing you have said quite a lot is that by engaging with these difficult issues, you actually feel suddenly you can grasp hold of them, and then they're not so even though they're even if they're big, they're now kind of manageable because you can think about them and do something about them and change things. Yeah, you become part of the solution rather than, you know, outside of it. However small that thing is, it's very empowering and, uh, you know, it's invigorating feeling like in, in little ways you are part of fixing things. Mm-hmm. So what's your what's your world of good, John? Perhaps you just complete the following sentences. So in my world of good, everyone has read which book? Oh... Um, so you want you want a book that's going to make people yeah, yeah. better? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, is this the book I read the most is it by Stephen King? But you, your listeners are not going to <laughs> go away and read that as a book that is going to help. What draws them What draws you back to that? That's interesting. Absolute escapism. Yeah, I, I mean, abject horror that makes you, however bad things are in this world. There's not a mad clown going around killing everyone. <laughs> Have you seen Boris Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> oh, very nice. There's your trailer. And, and and it's actually, it's a book about friendship and what it is to grow up. And I think I see a lot of Lancaster in Derry where the book is set, where there's a lot going on, but there's a lot not being talked about as well. And I think most towns in the UK actually have a lot in mm. common with that, where, mm. you know, we uh the, the race episode of our podcast was absolutely excoriating in that you know i come from an area that is so closely linked to cotton and therefore slavery and none of that is discussed in any meaningful way for a generation coming through to to be empowered to at least understand mm. where they come from and what that means to just break down those barriers and have a factual conversation about who we are and why we are how we are um so yeah there's there's that alluded to in it i think i think it's an absolute masterpiece i think there's so much in it it's a lovely long book and i i listen to it you know once every couple of years and i take something new from it every time mm-hmm. i think stephen king is a master at taking tensions that we feel and stories about what it is to grow up and what it is to lose friendship and be a different person he he manages to put that in a in a horror book mm. And so, in your world of good, everyone has watched which film? Oh, is it uh, by Stephen King? It? Just, just going to go. <laughs> the film I would say that everybody needs to watch is, or is it? I think the film I lean on the most is um, Home Alone. You know. But I'm now wondering how quickly I can cobble together an erudite answer about how Harry and Marv represent climate change and systemic change. And Kevin is us sort of stuck at home feeling like we've been left to make all the decisions for ourselves. Are you buying that? Wow, you've just taken it to a whole new philosophical level. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think Home Alone is, is, is an absolute classic. And I think, you know, when he eats that cheese pizza, what he's saying is... You've you've got to be the change you want to see in the world. Um, 
Any... But do you want do you want artsy answers? No, 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 no. We want we want, we want the truth. Yeah, this is really um, there's not coming coming out well for me this conversation <laughs> when you ask me what I represent. Uh, can I change my book answer to of mice and men? <laughs> <laughs> uh, any any thinkers, gurus, um, philosophers, uh, commentators that you think everybody should have a, a knowledge of? When I was in my um, this gets mocked a lot, but when I was, I would say, in my most damaged state, so I just dropped out of university and I was chefing in Bristol and doing three jobs so that I didn't have any time to think in between. I was a breakfast chef in a hotel, then I went to a pub and did the lunch shift, and then I would drink four cans of Boom in my garden and read the paper, and then I would go to an evening job. The, the things I started to read then were Paolo Coelho, which mm. is... Um, I mean, now I look back, is so it seems sort of GCSE level emotion. I would write down quotes from his books that I like and stick them on my kitchen cupboards, which I thought was perfectly normal until I invited some friends around. Oh dear, I had like a set of felt tips, and I would write them in ways. So one of the quotes was, "You don't drown by falling into water; you only drown if you stay beneath the surface." So I wrote that sort of I wrote the top line and then I wrote falling going down and then the rest going across as if it was sort of in water and one was something like be um be secretive in your plans and transparent in your actions so I wrote like secretive and I put it behind a little flap so you had to lift a flap (laughs) to see it And I had them all over the kitchenette in the bedsit I was living, where mm. there was literally plants going through the walls. I mean, it it looked exactly how it sounds. It looked like a desperately unhappy man. Yeah, you talk a lot about being single for a long period of time. I've never understood, <laughs> never understood why. Yeah. But, but now I feel I'm maybe getting an inkling. What could be sexier than coming back to the bedsit of a man with Paolo Coelho warrior of light <laughs> quotes all over his kitchenette, a sofa that folds into a bed where you can still reach the pan with the simmering corned beef hash that you've just eaten <laughs> on it. I mean, what a catch I was. Lucy often says to me, oh, I wish we'd met earlier. And I have to say to her, no, you don't. <laughs> I think if we'd have met 10 minutes before we met, you'd have hated me. Um, okay, final question. Last song on earth, Topia, call it. What's the, what's the song you want to be playing you out? Well, I'm a big believer in sort of confronting your emotions. And I, as much as I admire people who say they want their funerals to be celebrations and you know i i think i want people to be fucking devastated when i'm gone (laughs) you know just get it out of your system have a good old cry when i first saw anthony and the johnsons singing hope there's someone and it was a moment of such instant connection with a voice and a song I like really sad music to the point where I'm not allowed to sing around the house. My five-year-old just doesn't understand. She lives in a world of Barney the Dinosaur and songs about farts and colours and rainbows. She doesn't understand why you would listen to a song about a ghost coming to take a dead man down a black river. (laughs) Why is Daddy singing Hurt by Johnny Cash again? (laughs) Oh, beautiful, yes. Oh, you're making me want to get hammered and turn all the lights off. I feel so bad now because you started with such a lovely speech about how this podcast was supposed to represent 
beautiful changes and the, the things we can take with us to make the world a better place. And it's ended with me saying, let's get shit-faced and put Johnny Cash on. <laughs> the album he made where you could hear he was dying. That one. <laughs> oh, God, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, it's what we've come to expect from you. Um, and I think <laughs> it, it, it remains only for us to say thank you, John Richardson. You're a lovely, lovely man. Thank you, John. Ditto. Thank you, gentlemen. So there we go. As we leave John with Johnny Cash, I would also like to say thanks to you for listening. If you have ever wondered just what it is this mind bender of a universe is all about or want to be entertained with inspiring positive stories, follow Topia at at World of Topia on all the usual social media channels and fall down the rabbit hole on worldoftopia.com where you can sign up to the newsletter, which is called A World of Good. And it is good. You'll hear from us again in season two. We are lining up a guest as we speak. Until we meet next, remember to look up at the stars and dream. Topia editor Lisa Goldapple has told us to end on a funny sign-off. So bang bigly until season two. We'll see you then. Hopefully not too sore.